0: For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel
1: What if, what if you've got it all wrong? What if you've had God wrong all along? Let's say maybe you're in here and you consider yourself somewhat spiritual. You have a sense of kind of the, there's something else out there. You pray. You're a pretty good person. You try to be generous and volunteer. You're one of those people who's just generally been spiritual your, your whole life. and You have a sense of what you think God is or seemingly the opposite of that, take somebody who is very religious, kind of die-hard churchgoer, has been in Sunday school and small groups and Bible studies their whole life and follows the moral truths of Christianity or some other religion. You've been doing the religious or spiritual thing your whole life, but what if, what if God, the real God, who he actually is, how he actually works, what he wants for you and maybe even from you is not at all what you assumed or have believed for many years. How would you even know if you were wrong? You wouldn't, you would have no idea. It would take a dramatic kind of world-altering, paradigm-shifting encounter with the real God or or at least it would take willingness authentic willingness to seek God with total openness and humility that you might have it wrong. For Saul in our story today, it was the former. On the road to Damascus, he encountered the real God and it wasn't at all the God he'd expected or been following for his whole life and it changed everything for him. We start in Acts chapter nine and I'm gonna go ahead and read verses one and two to give us the context of what's going on here. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul, and we've seen this the past couple weeks, was like a federal prosecutor, but the law not being kind of the law of the land, it was the law of the religious community, which essentially was the law of the land. He was a Jewish religious political, kind of appointee if you would, federal prosecutor. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr to Christianity, who had seen his death as something that was being just and right, carrying out God's justice and law. And lest Saul get a bad name, um, we have to recognize that from that culture's perspective, Saul was doing everything right. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, which in our mind sounds bad, but he was like a top rabbi, if you would. The story of Saul, and we get this from other places, and his other name is Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. So Saul, Paul, is that he was from Tarsus, which would have been up in Turkey. So he didn't live in Israel growing up. He lived in, a, in the Roman Empire, He was a Jew growing up in the diaspora in Tarsus in what is modern day Turkey. But We also know from other writings that he was not only a faithful Jew who grew up in a Hebrew home, but he was also a Roman citizen. Now if you had gone into the city of Tarsus, there would have been very few Roman citizens. To be a Roman citizen means that you had higher status than nearly everyone else because you had rights and freedoms and protections. So he was both a faithful Jew and a Roman citizen. And when he was a young man, his parents sent him to Jerusalem, which was a long way away in a culture that didn't just send people far away. He went to study under Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. This meant that not only was he one of the most faithful religious guys in his community, but his family was wealthy. He had status and wealth, connections, success. He talks about this kind of upbringing in Philippians chapter three when he writes, look, I was circumcised on the eighth day, not the seventh, not the ninth, on the eighth, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a higher up tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, ethnically, I was everything I was supposed to be in a culture that valued your ethnic ancestry. On top of that, my life was impeccable. As to the law, a Pharisee, which means he followed everything. As to zeal, I persecuted the church as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. We think of him negatively in this context, but actually he was the kind of person you would want to know. He was the one you would want your daughter to marry. Our culture has its own set of values, metrics of success, ways that we say this is good, this is bad. In that culture, he had everything right. He was everything good. He had pedigree, brilliance, religious passion. He was flawless. In an honor and shame culture, he had high status. He was young and incredibly successful. Like if there was a Jerusalem Times magazine back then, he would have been in the top 30, under 30. You know, one of those guys that like, ooh, I had a friend who, uh, not too long ago, was a top 40 under 40 in Richmond Magazine. He was another minister, you know, like, I don't know, he a better preacher than me, like, bigger church, you know, better look, yes, all of those things, but I wasn't jealous, I thought it was pretty good of him and all, I mean, you know, if you can make that sort of, if that thing matters to you. Top 40 under 40. (laughs) Richmond's a smaller city than D.C., just so you know. (laughs) But Saul was that kind of person. And then something happens. He he encounters the Lord. In verse three, now as he went on the way, he approached Damascus. Verse three, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The most remarkable part of that whole thing is the phrase that Paul says, who are you, Lord? So Saul was as religious as they come. He knew the entire Old Testament from Genesis all the way through the prophets. He probably had most of it memorized, which means Saul was very aware of something called a theophany, a visual manifestation of the Holy Lord. He knew that it had happened to Abraham when the Angel of the Lord came to him and said, "Do not kill your son." He knew that Yahweh had appeared. Yahweh, the God, had appeared in the burning bush to Moses. They, that the Lord had appeared as an Angel of the Lord to to Gideon, calling him to be a judge and a prophet in ancient. He knew that this existed as a category, and it often involved light and a voice, some angelic creature. Why doesn't he say? oh, Yahweh, it's you, I got it. He's confused. He's confused because he doesn't have a category for part of what he sees. He sees the light, hears the voice, but in the light there is not just a light, there is a man. And he doesn't have a category for a Yahweh man. See, Saul's God was the God of the law, the Old Testament law. It involved obedience to all the commands of God, whether they were the moral laws or the political laws or the the religious and ceremonial laws. His God, the God of the law, involved a temple where you went to make sacrifices for your sins, to make God okay with you. His God was the God of his culture as well. The God who had chosen the people of Israel and he was one of the chosen. It was an ethnocentric God. The God that is for us and not them. We're in, they're out. And it was a God quite frankly that he could figure out. If I obey X and Y and Z, And some of you are good at obeying X, Y, and Z. If I obey these things, I'm good. He was doing just fine before his God. But then on the road to Damascus, Saul was confronted with the God that he did not construct. It was the holy God, the holy other transcendent God that he'd always believed in, but it was also the personal and human God that he never expected. He encountered the real God in the risen Jesus. If, we, if you and I don't encounter the real God, we'll do the same thing Paul does. We'll construct God. We'll construct God in our own image according to our own heart's desires. Now, nowadays, most of us, if we're gonna construct a God, aren't gonna construct the holy judge, the one with laws and obedience and temple and sacrifices. That's not really our thing today. If we're gonna construct God, it's gonna be a God who is accepting, who watches over us and helps us to be better people. It's quite frankly a God that reflects our culture's assumptions and values, much like Paul's God did his and it reflects our own personal selfish wants and needs. We're all usually very self-centered in our approach to theology. Theology is just what you make of God. Everyone's a theologian because everyone does something with God, whether you're an atheist or a devout, whatever. You have a theology, and you are a theologian. Most of us are self-centered. Actually, all of us are self-centered in our approach. And let me give you an example. When I was in high school, I had a strong faith And there were things that I I did not struggle with. And consequently, I couldn't tolerate in other people. Now, I was very aware that God disapproved of these things. So, like, jealousy and, and gossip were things that I didn't actually struggle with as a teenager. And I really hated it when I heard other kids gossiping or being jealous. And I knew I was justified in disapproving of them because God hated it, too. Jealousy and, and gossip are wrong. And so I take a hard line on things that I didn't struggle with. But things I did struggle with, like arrogance and pride or lust, in that case, I would focus on God's grace and forgiveness. I mean, God forgives us. It doesn't matter what you've done, everyone struggles with stuff. God loves us, it's by grace even as a believer in Jesus, the things I emphasized or de-emphasized were based on my own selfish desires. I would suggest to you that none of us are as humble and open as we think we are when it comes to I could be wrong about God. Like most of us, even those of us who are very kind of progressive in our mindset would say, you know, I'm, I'm open to whatever God could be, but that's not actually true. I would suggest that nearly every one of us is as dogmatic and zealous as Saul was about our own God construct. How do I know? Because if I start talking about where I think Jesus and the God of the Bible and Christianity, that God, what that God says about things like people of other races or immigrants, whether they are illegal or Muslim and his love for them, or what God says about the poor, and I don't mean the deserving poor who kind of work to get off of the trouble, I mean anyone who's poor. What God says about that, if I really went into it, some of you would just start, that's not really, you you would justify, you would kind of back up your political stance. And if I flipped it and said, well, what about what God says about your sexuality? What you do with your body? God cares about these things. And a whole bunch of others of you would be like, eh, that's, let's kind of back off a little bit here. Let me take something that everyone in America hates when you talk about what God has to say, to say about it. Say about, say about, how, about, how about your money? So that cuts a crumble with the same Democrats, doesn't it? So let me just give you a kind of a, a brief overview, all right? The Old Testament standard was 10% of your income, not after taxes, was given to the Lord in what was called a tithe, 10%. But when you added in all the other Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, it was more like 15 to 25% of your income was given to the work of the Lord and for the care of the poor, 15 to 25%. Jesus comes along and says, oh, that's, that's all you're going to do? He tells the rich young ruler, go and sell everything and come follow me. In the early church, it says, the rich sold things to care for the poor so that nobody among them was in need. Generosity in Christianity has a starting point of 10%. Okay, do the math. You make $100,000, that's 10000 or more Given to the work of the Lord and for the poor. You make two hundred thousand, that's twenty thousand. Given away. How many in here are kind of trying to say, Well, that's not exactly justify? You want to shoot the messenger, right? I'm just saying it so you'll give more to my church. Well, yeah, but you know. No, really. When it comes to our money, that's a great example of where we actually hold very zealously and dogmatically to the God we've already constructed. And to the extent that you're willing to release it is a great, great emblem of where your heart is. If there is a real God, let's just say hypothetically there is a real God. Some of you maybe are atheist, agnostic, not really sure. Let's let's just suppose for a second there is an actual real God Don't you think he might just challenge or contradict you at times or possibly even infuriate you? Might the real God call you to give up things that you find very important to you or to care about things that right now you don't care about at all? An encounter with the real God will change you. An encounter with the real God will change you. Paul had this constructive view of the transcendent God who would come to vindicate his people and judge their enemies, the Gentiles. But Jesus comes along as the suffering servant who died a shameful criminal death to pay for the rebellion and sin of his own people and the Gentiles. He had a God up here But he met a God on a cross. And the God who loves you enough to die for you on the cross is the God who can ask anything of you. Paul had a vision for his life. Think about it. He did. He had a vision for what his life was going to be, what success was going to look like in the years to come. But God had another plan. In verse 15 and 16, we get it as the Lord speaks to Ananias, the disciple who goes to pray for for Saul, Paul. He says, Paul is my chosen instrument, the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, Jesus' name, to the Gentiles, the people that Saul would have hated, to kings, to the people of Israel. This is God's plan for Saul, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I don't think that was in Paul's original plan. Here's the question. Are you still in control? Are you still in control of your life? Is your life still your own? Do you think about it as your career? It's your children. Your free time. Your body. Your money. Or do you think of it fully as God's? You may have a God, but not yet encountered Jesus. In other words, you haven't been, as Paul was, converted. And here's the thing we learn about Saul Paul's story. Everyone, both the very, very good and religious and the very, very bad and evil, need to be converted. Even the very good need it. So Paul was doing everything right, right? By the culture standards and religion's demands, Paul was nailing it. But in his encounter with Jesus on that road to Damascus, and in the three days of darkness and prayer that followed, Paul realized even his religiousness, his ethnicity, his faithfulness, his moral uprightness, all of his years of prayer and sacrifice and memorizing the Bible, all of that was not enough. He could not be religious enough, obedient enough, good enough. As he says elsewhere in the book of Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that includes the most rabbi of rabbis, the most priest of priests, the nicest of nice people fall short. If Saul's story tells us anything, it's even the successful and together. And our culture paints it differently. Like in Vienna, to be successful means that you have kids that are polite and very athletic and who get straight A's and go to top universities. Then you've made it. You're a success here. Even they need Jesus. And that's true about even the religious, the very good, the incredibly kind person. They too need Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is enough even for the worst and most guilty person in this room or in the world. You know, Paul realized that even his goodness and obedience were a way of rebelling against God. Think about that. His goodness and obedience were a way of rebelling against God. What do I mean? By following all these rules, memorizing all this stuff, he was simply assuring himself that he was okay he was saving himself before the God he had constructed. He was maintaining control, control of his life and building up a God that he could appease, that he could match all the things that he needed to match. He was very, very good, and he realized it was rebellion against God. And on top of that, Paul, in the midst of this kind of conversion experience, began to see just how deeply bad he was how evil and guilty he was. In verse five, Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. As Saul went around persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Jesus. He stood there as the federal prosecutor indicting Stephen to have him killed when Stephen was completely innocent. Can you imagine? not just being an accidental murderer, but being an intentional murderer and realizing later the person that you thought that you were doing justice to was completely innocent. Saul verse two of chapter eight says, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged men and women and committed them to prison. I know only a few of you have seen the movie that came out around Easter called Paul the Apostle of Christ. It's a really kind of insightful take on Paul as he's in prison in Rome. Luke is going to him, visiting him as he's writing the book of Acts. And he's visiting Paul in prison. And Paul, in this movie, has these dreams. They're actually nightmares. It's this recurring nightmare. And the recurring nightmare in Paul's dream is of him standing there as Stephen is being executed and then it's the faces of all the men and women and children that he has overseen their executions, whose lives he has completely destroyed. Guilt replaying in his mind. We pass over it, but Paul was very guilty. His past involved horrible stuff. We all know what guilt is, right? It doesn't just take being from a traditional or religious or Jewish or Catholic culture. You know what guilt is, right? We we have guilt. You know what it is to replay your sin and your guilt in your head. The things that you've done, the ways that you've fallen short, the horrible things that nobody else knows about, and that voice inside your head. Why should God forgive you? No, no, that, not that. That he won't forgive. That is not the voice of God. And Paul's gospel gives us that declaration of forgiveness and grace and healing that every one of us needs to hear because all of us know we are guilty on some level. In First Timothy, he writes, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and opponent. He was against God even though he thought he was for God, but I received mercy, not because I all of a sudden became good enough, but because the grace of our Lord overflowed to me, and faith and love that were in Christ Jesus, Jesus who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This was Paul's gospel. I am a sinner. There is nobody worse than me, and yet nobody better than me, because by grace I have been forgiven and offered mercy through Jesus. That is the gospel. The gospel is, as Paul goes on to write in various other parts of the Bible, is that I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live, I don't live by following the law, by trying to be good, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. And because I believe that, there is now, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, even for all the horrible things you have done. In fact, 2 Corinthians five seventeen says that if anyone is in Christ by faith, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All of your past rubbish, all of the future stuff you will do is gone. In God's eyes, you are a new creation. And nothing, Romans 8, 38 and 39 tells us, nothing can separate us from the love of God, including our own brokenness and sin. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And it's all on the basis of, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. That is the gospel. It doesn't matter what you've done. Hear that, it does not matter what you've done. The cross is enough. The cross and God's grace are sufficient. The gospel, and we've said it here, is this. You are more sinful than you're willing to admit, but you are more loved in Jesus Christ than you dare to imagine. The key is to realize this and be changed. Conversion, which everyone needs, is at its core a coup d'etat. It is an overthrowing of a regime. It is an impeachment of your administration. Think about the irony of the overthrow of Paul's administration, a perfect religious follower, a brilliant and celebrated young rabbi who had status and success, zealous in every way possible, now is the kind of person, if you read through the letters of Paul, who simply admits his sin and his weakness left and right. He abandons all the cultural metrics of success, of honor, of status, and instead becomes an ambassador to the Gentiles, the people he hated, preaching Jesus, whom he hated, as the Christ, and he suffers for it joyfully. Paul's encounter with Jesus overturned his God and tossed out his self-rule. His priorities, his values, his purpose and identity in life were gone, and it was all for Jesus now. He writes in Philippians 3, the second half of that passage where he talks about how great he is, He says, but whatever gain I had, all that past status and success, all the things I've achieved in life, I count it as a loss, as if I might as well have wasted the previous 20 years because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, count them as trash, count them as dung. Everything I've accomplished in my life might as well be thrown out in order that I may gain one thing, Christ." And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own because I'm such a good person, I do all the right things, but a righteousness not that comes from obeying the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness given to me. You are right because Jesus died for you. That's it. His conversion involved regime change and it needs to for all of us. In one of the other accounts in Acts where Paul talks about his conversion, he talks about encountering Jesus and he adds a sentence that wasn't included in our passage. In Acts twenty six fourteen, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's a weird phrase, a goad was a sharpened stick like a small spear that a shepherd or an ox cart driver would have and they would poke the animals. You poke the animals to get them to go in the right direction. A sheep is not going to naturally go towards food and water, it will go towards a cliff, they're dumb. An ox doesn't necessarily want to go home, it's just going to go, so you poke it to get it to go in the right direction. God has been goading Paul. And Paul has been fighting it all along, unwilling to see who God is or to go where God wants him to go. Are there things in your life that God is goading you away from? Beliefs, things you need to give up, people you need to forgive. Or is it God himself you've been kicking against this whole time? God desires every person to encounter the risen Jesus and be converted. But what if, what if you've actually encountered Jesus? Maybe even this morning, just in a little bit, are encountering Jesus, but aren't willing to see him for who he is. His grace is enough. His love covers all. Let's pray. God, it is such good news that Saul, the perfect religious guy who is also a murderer, is forgiven. He needed Jesus and Jesus was enough for him. And wherever we stand this morning, trying to nail everything with success or feeling like total failures, we need you, and you are enough. May we fall before you, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.